Christian truth is in the service of Christian love. If I speak with the tongue of the reformers and professional theologians and have not personal faith in Christ, my theology is nothing but the noisy beating of a snare drum. And if I have analytic powers and the gift of creating coherent conceptual systems of theology so as to remove all liberal objections and have not personal hope in God, I am nothing. If I give myself to resolving the debate between supra and infra-lapsarianism and to defending inerrancy and learning the Westminster Catechism, yes, even the larger one, so as to recite it by heart backwards and forwards and have not love, I've gained nothing. Kevin Van Hooser, who is one of the uh, preeminent Reformed contemporary theologians we have in the English-speaking world today, says that. And it resonates very much with the entire approach that we've sought to take as we look at the book of Romans. And it's particularly important today because when we begin looking at Romans 12 this morning, the book of Romans takes a significant pivot. John Stott gives a summary not only of Romans but of what Christianity is intended to be when he says it follows a maxim from doctrine to doxology to delight. We begin with doctrinal truth which then moves us to doxological praise, which then causes us to live lives of delight. Well, Romans 1 through 11, and specifically Romans 1 through 8, Paul has been working excellently, fastidiously, and thoroughly to establish and lay the foundation for Christian doctrine. And preeminent to all of what Paul said from a doctrinal standpoint is Paul wants to make sure we understand justification. Well, as Paul has laid this important theological framework and doctrinal treatise in Romans 1 through 11, but even more specifically, Romans 1 through 8, he takes a sharp pivot, as they say, in Romans 12 and starts to talk about moving from doctrine to doxology to delight. Taking And the way I've thought about it would be this. Uh, any... Uh, Athletic teams, especially college, pro, etc., and even the more serious ones on smaller levels do a ton of film study, both collectively and individually. You talk to any good coach of any major college program or professional team, and they are in front of the TV or the computer almost incessantly. And then they bring what they learn to their team and the team practices and then they even get just before the game into the locker room to make sure that everybody understands what's happening. But then it's time to play. Well, in Romans 12, Paul is finished at this point. Not completely, but he's moving away from film study. He's moving away from pregame locker room talk. And in Romans 12, Paul is saying... It's time to go. It's time to manifest what I have been teaching. This is what it means to live the Christian life. Romans 12, beginning in verse 1. Stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning. Answering the great question that the theologian and pastor Francis Schaeffer asked, how should we then live? With all of what Romans 1 through 11 said, how should we then live? 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Recently, I was recounting a movie that would be um, a little off the beaten path, uh, to say the least. It came out over 10 years ago. It was produced by HBO Films, and it was a movie that portrayed, actually, uh, the script of a play that was written entitled Wit. The movie uh, stars Emma Thompson, who is a college uh, English professor. She's a John Donne scholar, and in the film, her name is Vivian Baring. And the film begins with her diagnosis of cancer. And then, really amazingly, and really um, kind of sadly, but also beautifully, the theme of the film runs through John Donne's script, John Donne's poetry, John Donne's phrases like, death be not proud. But among all the different things that the film, even though it's short in nature, has to teach us one of the saddest but truest and most important lessons in the film comes repeatedly as Vivian Baring, this English professor who's extremely possesses a lot of wit, possesses a lot of wisdom and knowledge, degrades her body and her mind and her spirit as cancer eats away not only at her body but also her soul and the interactions that she has was with one particular medical researcher who's also an MD and dialoguing about what it's like for her to be experiencing what she's experiencing. And I can simply just say it's extremely dehumanizing to watch him interact with her. Another thing that's very interesting is the film shows that she recalls back in her own classroom, and even having this particular doctor, this medical researcher, this cancer specialist in her class as a college student, and she even recalls and remembers her attitude, not only specifically towards him, but her attitude towards other students, which in many ways would be characterized as overly intellectual, dehumanizing, lacking love and empathy. And now the tables are turned, at one point highlighted by a conversation where you can just tell that her spirits 
are being crushed. Her soul is weary as the cancer is taking over her body. And this medical researcher cannot notice or understand what's going on in her, within her soul and her spirit. He is just so fascinated by cancer. And at this point, when he's standing next to her, of course, with no bedside manner whatsoever, he's espousing all the details and the doctrine, if you will, of cancer. And at one point, he gets to a loss of words. In the midst of his excitement, what a contrast to her laying in the bed with a crushed spirit. And he just says, cancer is, and and like he's elated. And she says, awesome. And he says, yes, cancer is awesome. Well, it wasn't to her. And what that means in that moment is he was so fixated intellectually. He was so fixated on the doctrine of the disease that he didn't realize that if that doctrine does not manifest itself into real life and real love and real humanity, then the doctrine that he possesses and the knowledge he has means nothing. And that's what's important for us to know this morning. The doctrines that Paul has been outlining for us in Romans 1 through 11 are intended to lead to love. Knowledge that does not manifest itself in love is not true knowledge. Because all knowledge, all doctrine, all truth is meant to have ethical implications. How should we then live, as I already said, is the question that Paul is answering in Romans 12. And the overarching idea that I want us to grab from Romans 12 this morning is all of life is intended to be worshipful. All of life is intended to be manifested in a living sacrifice. What does doctrine mean in our lives? It means that everything that we do, everything that we think, everything that we say is an act of worship. Our lives, our very beings, even specifically our bodies, are intended to be living sacrifices. And to begin with, I just want to say, I hope you understand how liberating This is how freeing it is that Christianity has a message that is not compartmentalized, that Christianity has a message that is expansive, that Christianity, like my friend that I talked about on Easter, Claire, is not a religion of walls, but it's a relationship of windows and doors, that Christianity cannot be confined to one or two hours on Sunday morning. That Christianity can't be confined to the walls of the temple. That Christianity is meant to be manifested and lived in all aspects of life. Maybe at times you've thought or said or heard others say in, the, in a moment of beauty, whether it be at a concert, after hearing Handel's Messiah. Maybe you thought, Or someone said, now that is worship. And according to Paul, 
in Romans chapter 12, he would say, amen. Or maybe it's you perfectly skiing on a bluebird powder day. And you think, man, this is worship. And what Romans 12 says is, you're right. Or maybe when it's you eating an amazing meal or drinking a fine wine and someone says, or you think, or you believe, this is worship. And what Paul would say is, you're right. Because all of our lives are made to worship God. Everything we do has the capacity to be a living sacrifice, a spiritual act of worship. Of course, this is not to negate the specificity of temple worship. It's not to negate the specificity of what it means for us to be here this morning, but what it does mean is we take what we do here this morning and we manifest it out in the world in every aspect and in every corner of our lives. It's what Abraham Kuyper, the former prime minister of the Netherlands, said, there's nothing in all of creation that Christ does not look at and declare, this is mine. Either Jesus is the Lord of all or he's not the Lord at all. This is what it means to have a reformed or a Christian world and life view. We don't have to think about Christian things in order to think Christianly. Like you don't have to think about the sacrament in order to have Christian thoughts. Rather, we are called to think Christianly about all things. There was a book written back in the 60s entitled The Christian Mind. It was by a British author and scholar named Harry Blameyers. And that's what he says, to think Christianly is not to necessarily think about Christian things, but to think Christianly is to think biblically, is to think in a gospel-centered way about all things. Francis Schaeffer regularly talked about all truth being God's truth. All truth is God's truth. That's, I mean, that we could go on this for a while, but that's one of the things that's so ludicrous about trying to make, let's say, a dichotomy between faith and science. It's a false dichotomy. All truth is God's truth. God not only is within Sunday school classes, God is in math and chemistry classes. Why? Because He's the Lord of all. And everything we can do in life is called to be a living sacrifice, an act of worship. Paul says, present your bodies. And of course, this goes against the heresy of their day, which was Gnosticism. And many people today, I don't have time to get into it, though it's a fascinating discussion. Good thinkers today are talking about an evangelical Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is a heresy that was defeated in the second century by Irenaeus. Gnosticism is more aligned with Plato than it is with the gospel. And Gnosticism is simply a separation between the body and the soul. And essentially what evangelicals do today is act as if it's the body that is evil and it's the spirit that is good. Paul is quick to say in Romans 3 that our bodies can perform acts of unrighteousness. But he also says in Romans 6 that our bodies are instruments of righteousness. Our body is not our problem. In fact, we are called to use our bodies physically as acts and vessels of worship. And once again, this should be completely liberating. One of the greatest shames, I think, that Christians 
over the years, particularly I would even say over the last 50 years, is sought to isolate Christianity and to narrow Christianity and to put Christianity more and more into a box and actually to separate Christianity more and more from the culture, so much so that most people see Christians viewing the gospel as against culture as opposed to the gospel engaging culture. It's salt and light, which is what we're called to. It's all of life is an act of worship in order to live as living sacrifices before God. This is manifested in any myriad of ways, but one of my favorite examples, and I mentioned this uh, earlier in the series on another level, is from the story, the true story in the movie The Chariot of Chariots of Fire. Chariots of Fire I mentioned earlier about Harold Abrams in the realm of justification. He sought to justify himself in that 10 lonely seconds, you know, in that one lane or whatever. But Eric Little, of course, is the Scottish Presbyterian Christian in the film who also is a great runner. In fact, in the 1924 Olympics, he was the greatest. But there's a poignant section in his life and then also depicted in the film where he's in a conversation with the sister whose name I believe is Jenny. And Jenny's a believer as well. They come from a Christian family and she's trying to convince and coerce Eric Little to be a missionary. And the logic seems to go something like this. Eric, if you really want to serve God, you need to do godly work. And godly work is synonymous with being a missionary to China. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to worship. That's what it means to have a living sacrifice. But thankfully, Eric had a better reformed world and life view than his sister Jenny did because in response to that, what Eric Little says is, I believe God made me for a purpose. And he made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And after I win this Olympics, I'm interpreting this, I can go be a missionary then. Think about how liberating that is. Like God made some of you so crazy smart with numbers. Do you feel his pleasure when you do finance? God made some of you so emotionally intelligent and intuitive? Do you feel God's pleasure when you counsel others? God made some of you, very few of you, but some of you, really good at golf. (laughs) Tell me you do not feel God's pleasure when you hit a 300-yard drive down the middle of the fairway. And what I'm telling you is, that is worship. And it's to be delighted in. It's to be embraced. Because God is too big to be confined to small spaces. We're not to live compartmentalized lives. Christianity is not a religion with limits. It's a relationship with freedom and with liberation. And... Paul outlines in a little more detail after a little bit of an elongated apologetic for the overarching big idea of all of life is intended to be worship. Our lives are intended to be a living sacrifice. He also answers specifically, what does it mean for our lives to be a living sacrifice? It means that our lives are characterized by three things. Mercy, transformation, and love. How should we then live? 
We should live by God's mercy. We should live as people who are transformed. We, how should we then live? We should live as people who love others more than we love ourselves. That's what Paul's talking about in more specificity from Romans chapter 12. He's saying all of life is intended to be an act of worship. All of life is an altar of sacrifice in your life. And it should be characterized and manifested by things like, first, mercy. In view of God's mercy, as you reflect upon God's mercy, as you contemplate God's mercy, as you are empowered by God's mercy is what he's saying. I really think about this in uh, a little more detail here. What does it mean to live a life of Christian service and worship by mercy? I see it meaning two things. One, mercy is the power that enables us to live our lives that would be glorifying to God. Without God's mercy fueling us, it's, it's just like grace. It empowers us. Mercy is not only a declaration of God's forgiveness, but mercy, like grace, is a gift that also empowers us to live faithfully. By God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. But it also entails and speaks to motivation. It's the power that allows us to be holy. It's the power that allows us to see all of life as an act of worship. But it also is the motivator that enables us to want to be holy. We all live by motivation in life, explicit or implicit in one way or another. One of the most powerful experiences that I can remember of motivation in my own life, and it, and it did personally inspire me, but I, I was peripheral to the larger narrative from this. Years ago, when I was still running um, pretty regularly, I, I ran in the Memphis Marathon, which is sponsored by St. Jude. I was running the half marathon, 13.1. Never got a sticker on the back of my car, but uh, that's the one I was doing, 13.1. Uh, but you're in the mix with, the, you know, the 26.2 people, and, and it's an awesome marathon, and I could talk about it on so many different levels, um, and it just manifests some of the beauty and the glory of Memphis. But in, in the realm of motivation, um, there are copious amounts of runners who are in that race wearing pictures and wearing statements on who they are running for. And it's, of course, pictures and statements of children who have cancer that are in St. Jude. You want to talk about a motivator to run a race? That's what Paul is saying. Be motivated by mercy. Be motivated by what God has done for you, not that you can ever pay Him back because the gospel is very clear. We owe no debt. All of our debts have been paid. However, what do you think the best way to manifest our love for God by receiving His love for us? It's by offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How can you do that? God's mercy empowers you and God's mercy motivates you. And Paul says, this is your spiritual act of worship. So not only is a life of worship that's a living sacrifice to be characterized by mercy, 
It's also to be characterized by transformation. I heard someone speak this week on a podcast saying the only thing that we will leave behind after we leave this present earth is transformed lives. And it was a call and an exhortation to say, live your life in a way where you are influencing and transforming other people. It's the only thing that you will leave on this earth. And Paul has a lot to say about it here, even though he doesn't say about it in so many words. I believe this is uh, significant depth that he's speaking of when he says you are to be transformed. If you want to live a life of worship, if you want your life to be a living sacrifice, you you must be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But he also puts it in juxtaposition. If we're going to experience transformation, two things must happen. Number one, you must not be conformed by the pattern of the world. Christian transformation, spiritual formation, that's what, I love that term. I think we get oftentimes confused about what the word discipleship means. I prefer the term spiritual formation. What does it mean to be spiritually formed? Well, according to Romans 12, first and foremost, it means not to conform to the pattern of the world. What are things that characterize the pattern of the world? The pattern of the world is self-centered. The pattern of the world is prideful. The pattern of the world elevates self. The pattern of the world is characterized and dominated by fear. The, power, the, the pattern of the world is obsessed with power and control and approval. The pattern of the world is about escape. The pattern of the world is merit-based. You eat what you kill. The the pattern of the world is characterized by gossip, slander, and maliciousness. The pattern of the world tells us that truth is relative. The The pattern of the world tells us authority is evil. The pattern of the world tells us that authority is to perpetuate sinful, selfish desires amongst a select group of people. The pattern of the world incites division and inequality, and of course, the list could go on and on. And Paul says, do not be conformed by these things. Do not be conformed by power and control and approval. Do not be conformed to maliciousness and gossip. Do not be conformed to slander. Do not be conformed to being unjust. Do not be conformed to not giving people the benefit of the doubt. Do not be conformed to being uncharitable. Do not be conformed to falling into the traps that modern media wants to lead us into. No matter which side of the political spectrum you're on, they all seemingly end in a self-righteousness judgmentalism towards the people that are you're not. That's the pattern of the world. And Paul says, don't be conform to the pattern of the world. And it's as if he implicitly says, that's mindless. You're not really thinking. It's illogical. In fact, interestingly enough, the Greek word for your spiritual act of worship means logical. But the pattern of the world is illogical. Might seem logical. I would argue it's illogical. And what Paul says is, we need to be more logical. We need to have our minds Renewed. There's an amazing book that was written really a generation ago by a man named Neil Postman entitled Amusing Ourselves to Death. 
I gave you a quote at the front of your bulletin. I'm not going to read it at this moment, but you can see that it's from him. At one point in the book, he does this great dialogue between Huxley's view of the world in the future and Orwell's view of the world in the future. Of course, Orwell in 1984 and Aldous Huxley, A Brave New World, and he says this. This is not the one at the front of your bulletin. What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared, that those, uh, Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared that we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture. As Huxley remarked, in a brave new world revisited. The civil libertarians and rationalists who are ever on the alert to oppose tyranny failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for diversions. Yet Paul says, if you want to live a life of worship, you're not to be conformed to the pattern of the world. Rather, you are to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I would just simply say, most of the information that is dispensed to us is received by us without discernment. Me included. I'm not pointing my finger here. And of course, it's mediated and manipulated by the ways in which we currently receive it technologically. And now maybe of all times, we need a revival and a renewal of what it means to think. What it means to think Christianly. What it means to be biblically informed. The lower our biblical literacy goes, the higher our propensity is to make decisions on whatever we think best or whatever we read today. And that's not what brings transformation. It's not what it means to have a spiritual act of worship. It's illogical according to the Scriptures here. In the Christian mind, Blameyer says, if there were only an inhabited field of discourse where Christians were thinking Christianly about everything, there would be something nutritional for Christian minds to feed on. But Christians are being truncated and deformed By the fact that men and women have to leap about from one tradition of discourse to another as they move in thought and discussion from moral matters to political matters, from ecclesial matters to cultural matters. Do you understand what he's saying here? And and he's nailed it. He wrote this thing in 1963. Christians today are leapfrogging from one pod to another. This is my moral position. This is my political position. This is my financial position. This is my ecclesiastical position. This is my cultural position. This is my sociological position. And by the way, they essentially all contradict each other. But they're compartmentalized. And what he's arguing for is, no, 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 no. To be a Christian means we submit to the Lord of all who is Lord of every area of life. That we view through the lens of the gospel and through the Bible everything. 
It's not church and politics. It's not ecclesiology and economics. It's viewing all things as an act of worship, as a living sacrifice in order to not conform to the pattern of the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, which means to be logical, which means to think, which means to read books. It really does. Like, we need to read books. Beginning with the Bible. We need to read the Bible if we want to be transformed. If we want to be renewed in our minds. And and really all this ends in love. So just to repeat the matrix and the framework here. Overall, Paul is saying, this is amazing. These truths are so profound and invasive and evasive that it transforms everything. Like, not only is it good for you to know what justification is, in some ways what Paul is saying, what difference does justification make in your life? And Paul's saying, the difference it ought to make is everything you do is intended to be a living sacrifice. Everything you do is an act of worship, which is incredibly freeing and liberating because we can think about all things Christianly. We don't have to simply think about Christian things, right? So all of life is worship is a living sacrifice. And all of life is worship is a living sacrifice is characterized by lives that are motivated by and empowered by God's mercy and view of God's mercy, which of course requires a reflective lifestyle just to throw in one other application. It's really hard to be empowered by the mercy of God and to be motivated by the mercy of God if we never reflect on the mercy of God. But as we reflect on the mercy of God in view of it, we're empowered by it and we're motivated by it to live by mercy, which then leads us to this concept of transformation. And transformation is happening in our lives as we don't conform to the pattern of the world, to the pattern of greed and power and control and approval and maliciousness and everything else that you know. But instead to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, to think, to quit amusing ourselves to death, to read to talk, to dialogue. And then all these things manifest themselves in a life of love. And that's where Paul says, and I'll be very brief in this, I had no intention to spend a significant amount of time in verses three through eight this morning just to simply communicate. A life of love that is a life of worship as a living sacrifice is characterized by what Paul says, sobriety. And the most literal understanding of what Paul is saying in verse 3, for the, by the grace of God given to me, I said to everyone, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Sobriety simply means being rigorously accurate. To be sober means you are rigorously accurate in the way you think about yourself, which leaves no room for pride whatsoever. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, Humility is not to think less of yourself because that's actually pride. Humility is to not think of yourself at all. And that's what Paul says. All these things are to manifest themselves in love, but love begins with the right mindset, which is to not think of yourself more highly than you are and to think of others in a way that is more collective. And that's where Paul gets into these spiritual gifts and we can spend some other time at another place 
analyzing and talk about and dialoguing the spiritual gifts, but all of the enumeration that Paul is doing here is he's simply saying to live a life that is a sacrifice of worship, you have to live with others. Not only, in fact, I wouldn't say he's saying you have to live with others. He's saying you get to live with others. You get to live an amazing, diverse community. You get to live in a world of every tribe, tongue, and nation. You get to live and serve in the midst of people that are prophets, that are teachers, that are generous, that are servers. And he doesn't come close to enumerating all the different spiritual gifts in this section that he does in other letters. But they all are communicating the same point. We exist for others, to be with others, to manifest their love and God's love into the world. That's what it means to have and live and sacrifice a spiritual act of worship. It's a life of mercy. It's a life of transformation. It's a life of love that actually leads back to where we began. Because you see, when the church is being the church and Christians are unified and they are, we are celebrating diversity, not seeking to increase division, guess what it testifies to? It testifies to the gospel. It testifies to the mercy that we've received And guess what that does? It speaks the words of God's mercy to a world that's dying for it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great text. It's fun to talk about and fun to think about. We pray that you would continue to challenge us. We do pray that you would allow our lives to be worshipful, uh, characterized as a living sacrifice, For your glory, we pray that you'd help us to think more deeply on these things, not only today uh, and in the weeks to come, but in our lives, period. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.